All right, everybody, welcome to the Primal Show. Um, today it's just me, Mike McKnight. Derek is traveling, he's getting ready for Hard Rock. Um, but we have an awesome guest today, one that I have been super excited about ever since he said that he would come on because I know he's extremely busy. I'm sure he's doing at least a podcast a day. <laughs> um, we'll let him introduce himself, though. We have Mark Sisson on with us. Thanks for joining, Mark. Michael, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Um, I'm in the south of France, as we discussed just before we started this. Um, we're, we come from Miami, where it gets a little hot in the summer, uh, to the south of France every year. We have a place that we rent here on a regular basis, and it's just spectacular. And, and uh, while there are lots of things that we do here, I think the main attraction is the is the hiking, uh, which we will talk about on the podcast today, and um, and and the food certainly, right, and the water, which is beautiful for paddling and swimming. So um, that's where I am, and. Uh, where your uh, co-host is, who knows, right? The tr the time zone changes that you and I have been negotiating over the past couple of weeks. Um, who, who knows wh where he thinks he is, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so is it just you and your wife there? Or do you have like a whole um, entourage? Yeah, so so we started with 20 of us. Um, every year I take an extended family vacation uh, to some place in the world that most of my family would never have an opportunity to go to. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to provide so we've been doing this for, I think, 12 years now, maybe more. Um, and it started with, uh, I don't know, we went to Oahu or, uh, sorry, Kauai one year, and then it was Belize, and then it was the Amalfi Coast, and then it was Greece, then it was Croatia, then it was uh, Portugal and Spain. And this year, we decided to go to Northern England and Scotland. So the 20 of us uh, were on the road uh, up until a few days ago. In We finished up on the Scottish Highlands. It was incredible. It was just like one of the greatest, most spectacularly beautiful places I've ever been. Um, the weather was not cooperative and it didn't matter, right? It was like, I never got above, I think, 58 degrees the whole time we were there. And it was hissing rain sometimes and foggy and whatever. But we still went hiking and, and I stood stand up paddling on the lock with clothing, you know, with basically full clothing on, uh, canoeing, uh, horseback riding, archery, skeet shooting falconry it was it was incredible so so we we left uh on saturday a few days ago and everybody went back to their respective homes in the u.s and then my wife and i came down here uh with only two other family members for a couple of days here to this place in uh in kept farat which is between nice and monaco but we're going to be here two months we'll be entertaining guests you know <laughs> passing through all summer long I can't describe how perfect that sounds. <laughs> so I'm guessing that uh, if I understand correctly, a large factor that like goes into where you go for these trips are paddleboarding and hiking access. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really is my kind of standard must have, right? I got to have some kind of great hiking and some kind of great um, water activity. And typically it's stand up paddling. Uh, and, and so normally we would go where there's an ocean or, or a large lake. And this time uh, it was on a lock in Scotland that we finished up a beautiful uh, a lock is what they call a lake and a lake spectacular. And so, um, you know, I'm able to, to keep my routine going while we're in novel places, eating unusual food and doing all the other stuff that we do. I can still um, get, you know, an hour or two a day of hiking in and some form of, uh, paddling or cycling by bicycling or something like that. Yeah. You know, that's a very important detail because 
ever since I've like focused on my health and fitness, um, I never realized how necessity it is or just like how much you need your routine. Like back in the day when I didn't care about my health and fitness, like traveling was awesome. Like, you know, we're going to go do this. I got to go to all these fancy restaurants, like stay out all night. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But once you get that routine of like getting up early, like getting your apple cider vinegar in the morning, getting your morning, morning sunlight, like having your preferences of food, like traveling can be difficult. So I, I do think that's an important thing that people need to realize that the routine is a huge aspect that you want to try to keep while you're traveling. And we do. And we've always done that. And we've always sort of, and one of the reasons we come back to this place in particular is because the routine is so, um, I hate to use the term predictable, but I know pretty much what my day is going to look like every day. Now it'll vary from one workout to the next. Some days I paddle, like yesterday I paddled for an hour and a half um, in Villefranche Bay and then uh, walked back along the the outside of uh, Cap Ferrat, which is about a three mile hike. Uh, this morning, my wife and I did two hours and 15 minutes of uh, fast walking. Um, I don't run anymore. Um, it doesn't appeal to me. And, uh, you know, as as we will discuss, I did it for so many years. I did so much of it for so long. It sort of lost its luster. But I love hiking and I love um, and, and I like working hard and walking hard up uphill and getting my heart rate up there and uh, sprinting up a hill every once in a while or racing the flats once you get onto a nice stretch of, of um, um, soft, you know, padded earth. Um, I still like breaking into sprints. We used to do that, call that fart lick, but, uh, <laughs> um, but mostly it's walking. Mostly it's just a nice, you know, um, fast paced walk, um, you know, covering as much ground as we can. So I've never paddled before. Um, is it like more of a recovery day type thing for you or can you get your heart rate up pretty good when you're doing that? Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is yes to both. Um, it's, I should say the answer is no to both, Michael. So it's not a recovery day. It's actually one of the hardest workouts I do all week. And uh, because it's a full body workout, um, for some bizarre reason, I can't get my heart rate above, say, 120 or 125 without bonking uh, within within a few minutes. So the idea with me for stand-up paddling is to pace a day's uh, uh, paddle. Let's say I'm going to go for an hour, hour and 10, um, to, to work hard for an hour and 10 and to be really like worn out at the end of a, of a hard paddle because you're using so many muscles of the upper body, using the, you know, the, the arms, of course, the shoulders, the lats, um, legs a little bit, uh, because you got to, you have to balance, you sort of have to bend your knees and maintain that, um, that proprioception of where you are in space. You don't fall into the drink. Uh, and so I've, I've noticed over the years, um, uh, cause I've worn heart monitors when I've paddled and I'm, I get back from what I think is a hard paddle and, it, and I might have to take a nap two hours later. Cause it was such a hard paddle and my heart rate never got above you know, say 125 or 130. Meanwhile, on a, on a fat bike, uh, which I ride on the sand in Miami once or twice a week. And that's another really hard workout that I do. I can get up to one. I I can stay in, in, you know, zone five, whatever the the hell that is these days, right. I can say it's zone zone four and five for an hour, uh, and get my heart rate up to 170, uh, at times. If I really, if I really, you know, push the pace, not for long, but I can, I can get up there. So it's really interesting how paddling, which I think is the single greatest workout you could do. I really do. I, it's, it's my, my favorite full body 
work out. And I would encourage anyone who's thought about doing it to try it, especially ultra runners. Uh, <laughs> it would be, it's just an adjunct to, to what you do. So, but to, to answer your question, it's definitely not a recovery day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to give you some insight, I bought a paddleboard last year and yeah. the first time I used it, I fell off. And I don't know how this happened, but it somehow snagged my toenail and it ripped my toenail right off my foot. Jeez and so Louise. I haven't been back on it since, but I might now, have did to you buy it. an inflatable? Did you? Yeah. Was it an inflatable? Yeah. Well, I'm not a big fan of inflatables. I think they're really difficult to negotiate. And were you on a lake or were you on a, um, uh, were you inland on a lake or, or, or a calm body of water? Or were you an ocean? Um, uh, I mean, no to both, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I was, on a, where, where were you? <laughs> I was on a lake, but there were boats like motor. Boats, okay, yeah. So yeah. I was getting a lot of choppiness yeah. out of it. It's really tough to learn on an inflatable. It's, it's like st- trying to stand on an air mattress for some people. It bounces so much, you know, when you okay. get a hard board, it really kind of cuts through those waves and, and you're able to, you know, get the workout in without having to spend so much time thinking about dropping to your knees to get through the next set of waves. Right. But the fact that you lost a toenail, just, I, I can't even imagine how that would happen. Yeah. Me either. <laughs> I just remember I fell in the water. I was like, Holy cow. Why does my toe hurt so much? And then I came out and got back on and I saw blood coming out of my toe. I was like, Oh wow. I don't have a toenail anymore. <laughs> it was bizarre. Which really cramps your style for running too. Right. Yeah. I had like a race the next weekend that I was kind of worried about, but ended up working out anyway. Yeah. Um, but I think this is a good transition. Like I, I kind of want to take a back step and learn about your health and fitness journey. Um, yeah. I mean, for those that don't know, I, I'd be surprised if people who listen to this podcast don't know who you are, Mark. <laughs> I mean, it's called the primal show, for example, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I know this is kind of like just a generic broad question, but would you mind just sharing where and potentially why slash how your fitness journey started? Yeah, I was. I grew up in a small fishing village in Maine, um, and the story goes: uh, I lived a mile and a half from school, and I found it more convenient to run to and from school, uh, just as a, a, a mode of transportation, than to walk to and from school, and certainly than to ride the bus, which quite often took so long. I realized pretty early that I could beat the bus both ways um, just by running home from school. So I did that for. Um, you know, in, in that like eighth grade, ninth grade. And by the time high school rolled around, I was kind of a scrawny kid. I, I, I was not big enough to play football, basketball, baseball, hockey, or any of the, you know, the He-Man sports in, in New England. So but spring track rolled around and uh, I went out for the track team. And, and lo and behold, I found I could win the mile and the two mile in most of the meets that I entered. So that kind of cemented my career as an endurance runner. Um, I went off to a private school for the last two years of, of my high school education and uh, rose up through the ranks there, became captain of the cross country and track teams, uh, and then went on to college and did the same thing. I ran throughout college, um, usually mile, two mile, but I didn't. They, they were too short for me. I liked cross country the best. And in the summers, I would do road racing. I would do 10Ks and, and 20Ks and off-road races um, and marathons. And so by the time I graduated from college, I was kind of a full-fledged marathon runner. And this was back in the heyday of real heyday of running. This is in the seventies when Bill Rogers, mm-hmm. well, Frank Shorter won the gold in, 
in the marathon in, uh, in 1972. And then Frank Shorter won the Boston Marathon. Sorry, uh, Bill Rogers won the Boston Marathon in 1975 and, and ran some time. They both ran some times that were considered inhuman at the time. And, uh, and Jim Fix wrote a book called Running, and, and it sort of started this whole movement toward uh, people getting out and doing cardio and doing aerobic activities. Ken Cooper's book on aerobics had come out in the late 60s. So it all kind of came together, and, and, and this was really the, um, the most phenomenal time for running in this country. Uh, there were so many great runners, and I, when I say great, people who would run you know, sub 220s uh, left and right. I, I ran a, a marathon in, um, in Oregon in 1979. It was called a Gathering of Eagles. There were 676 runners in this race. I ran uh, 221.38, and I finished 38th. Uh, and I was only there were there were only two foreign runners ahead of me. One was from New Zealand, and one was from Japan. That's how good running one in those. Imagine a, a small race up in Oregon, where where you know basically there were, I think in that in that race 25 guys qualified for the Olympic trials in that one race. Uh, so it was a it was a different time, and um, what it meant was it was very competitive. So as a as a guy trying to carve out a space in the uh, marathon world, if you weren't running 130 miles a week, you know you were you, you you were like feeling you were beating yourself up for not having worked hard enough. Holy cow! And when I and when I say 130 plus miles a week, which I, I never got to. The, my highest mileage week was 125. I averaged about 100 miles a week for the last for six years of my, the, sort of the latter years of my running career. Um, and I was injured for, for some of that, uh, as everyone was in those days. And I would say I went five years without running slower than seven minutes a mile. In oh, other words, yeah. in other words, you know, if I, if I went for a hard 10 miler in the morning, an easy six mile in the afternoon would be at 640 pace or 645 pace. Oh, yeah. Um, it, yeah, these were different times. And it was, it was what prompted me years later to write a book called Primal Endurance, in which I describe this concept of chronic cardio, this idea that so much of the work that we do or did in those days as runners was in what we call the black hole of training. It was like too slow to be considered um, pace work or tempo work, um, and too fast to be called uh, base work or aerobic work. It was just in this black black hole of heart rate where you your body wasn't developing any new skills. It wasn't building any new metabolic pathways um, in terms of uh, uh, capillary perfusion or or any of that stuff. It wasn't building any power or strength because you weren't going fast enough. But you felt like you were like grinding it out. It's literally like you were training yourself to hurt, you know, all the time. So uh, I did that for a number of years. And, and ultimately, I got injured. And I also wound up uh, realizing that a lot of the illnesses that I had, I got, I had uh, irritable bowel syndrome. I had uh, lots of upper respiratory tract infections. I had arthritis, ultimately, in my feet, uh, osteoarthritis. So I had to kind of, I had to quit running at, a, at an elite level. How old were you at this out, time? 28. 
Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was, um, you know, uh, actually, um, let's see, when did I, so I, I, I was 27 in uh, 1980 and I finished fifth in the U S national championships and the marathon championships. Um, and then, uh, and then I, I qualified for the Olympic trials a couple times that year. And, and I just didn't go to the trials. It was like, I was too injured and too beat up. And, oh, man. and we weren't going to send a team anyway. This was 1980 when, when the U S boycotted the Olympics. Uh, so I, I officially retired from triathlon. And then I, because I had this need to beat myself up physically every day. Uh, a friend of mine said, Hey, let's go to Hawaii. There's this big race called the Ironman. Uh, and let's go do that. And so I trained on a crappy steel bike and I taught myself how to swim. I taught myself how to not drown in the water for two and a half miles and went to Hawaii. And so my first triathlon ever was Ironman. Wow. 1981. So that was the year after you retired. That was the year after I retired. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I was just, and I was doing it to, so I, I, I was you know, doing it. You know, I could still run. I mean, look, I was probably the best runner that ever transitioned over to triathlon because most runners who were running at my level stayed runners. It was, you know, and, and they weren't, they didn't have the body type to be able to ride a bike well and hard. Um, and certainly didn't have the body type to swim. So I was kind of unique in that um, I, because I was injured through the running and because my, my body type really wasn't that of a runner um, per se. I'm, I think when I did my, you know, 23andMe DNA analysis a few years ago, it came back that I was 57% endurance athlete and 43% strength athlete. Wow. So, you know, that's, that's not enough to be a great endurance athlete. That's enough to be maybe a good parkour. Uh, or obstacle course racer. Yeah. But those didn't exist in my day. And it was probably good enough to be a good triathlete. But by then, I, I, you have to understand, I was already kind of beat up from years of training as a marathoner. So I only hung out in, in the triathlon world as a competitive athlete for a couple of years. I went on to finish fourth at Ironman the next year. But I, I learned early on that I didn't, I really didn't see a future in in spending the rest of my life managing discomfort all day long. Mm. So, so that's what, so, so that prompted me to um, not just reassess my own goals as an athlete, but also to think about humans in general and what, what it takes to be strong and lean and fit and healthy. Um, because a lot of times fitness uh, and performance fitness doesn't correlate with health, right? You have to work yourself so hard sometimes at the elite level that you compromise your health um, in order to eke out that last percentage of performance. So I started to ana analyze all of this. And I'd, I'd been a pre-med candidate in college and I had a degree in biology and I was very interested in evolution. And so I spent a lot of time um, digging deeply into the, into the literature, into the scientific literature, to come up with uh, a, a way of living a template for not just myself, where I could be strong and fit and lean and, and healthy with the least amount of pain, suffering, sacrifice, discipline, portion control, calorie counting, and all the other stuff that we talk about. Um, and after a few years of, of digging into that, I started a blog called Mark's Daily Apple, 2006. And then uh, later on, I, I wrote a book called The Primal Blueprint, which sort of was... I think the real uh, 
the beginning of a lot of investigation into ancestral health and ways in which uh, we could achieve better health by looking at um, how our behaviors affect our genes and gene expression. And the clues could come from evolution. Like how did we, what were the behaviors that humans exhibited for 2 million years that prompted uh, this genetic recipe that we have today? Uh, and so my life became about uncovering these, these hidden genetic switches that we all have and figuring out ways in which we could adjust our behavior to turn on the genes that build muscle and turn on the genes that burn fat and turn off the genes that cause um, illness and disease and turn off the, the genes that cause metabolic syndrome and turn off the genes that want to store fat. And it, it became, you know, that my, again, my life's work has been about identifying uh, ways in which we could all become healthier if we chose a different path. And that's where I am still today. <laughs> a few years later. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just to give you some perspective, the first time I ever heard of you, Mark, was in 2017. Um, I was kind of like at the the point in my life where I was having like a lot of sickness. I, I was basically eating as far away from a primal ancestral diet as possible. You know, I was eating the very basic standard American diet at the time. Um, and then my coach, have you ever met Jeff Browning before? Jeff Browning sounds familiar. Yeah. So he's an endurance athlete. He's 52. He's top 10 ultra runner of the year, almost every year. Um, he does a low carb primal approach. And so he told me to look into it and he gave me like Mark's daily apple. He gave me primal blueprint and basically just said like any questions you have about food, just like, look at this list. Like you have the, you know, the vegetables, the meats and like all that stuff. And right. I'm a, I'm a coach now too. And so I share that with a lot of the people that I coach who are interested in eating this way, but that Mark's daily apple, that blog that you do that book, like everything about that, like I absolutely love. <laughs> so this is just me doing a quick little pause to thank you for, for starting that because it's, it's broken down so easily. Um, My pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> So where in the midst or in the mix of all this, did you start? So for those who don't know, Mark is the founder of Primal Kitchen and like, I'm a sauce guy, Mark. <laughs> like when I went this route, the hardest thing for me to give up wasn't the breads. It wasn't the pastas and all that stuff. It was the ranch, the blue cheese, uh, the ketchup, all that stuff. So Primal Kitchen is an amazing company where like, I have so much of it in my house right now, but anyway, why or where, what led you to Primal Kitchen and where in the journey did that start? Well, you know, it started in 2010. So um, I had written the Primal Blueprint. I was doing daily um, uh, work on Mark's Daily Apple on the blog. Um, I was doing a recipe once a week. I realized pretty early that once you give up uh, sugar and, you know, pasta and bread and cereal and pies and cakes and candies and cookies and sweetened beverages and all this other stuff, you come down to a pretty short list of things that are appropriate for eating. Meat, fish, fowl, eggs, nuts, seeds, vegetables, a little bit of fruit, maybe some starchy tubers. Um, and what makes the difference is, is how you prepare them, right? The methods of preparation, the sauces, the dressings, the toppings, the herbs, the seasonings, the spices, and all of these uh, ways of, of fixing food give it, give that short list, ultimately a, a infinite variety of, of possibilities. Um, and so like, for instance, once a week, we did an, 
a recipe on Mark's Daily Apple. Uh, every every Saturday was a recipe day. And often it was how to make your own mayonnaise or how to make your own ketchup because there was nothing in the stores that that resembled what I thought would be the appropriate thing to put on your food. And I'm a sauce guy. I mean, I've always been a sauce guy and I've always been someone who wanted to take uh, the salad that I was uh, so excited about for so many years. I'm not anymore. I used to, I coined a phrase, the, the big ass salad long time ago, almost 20 years ago. And I would douse it in dressing. Um, but I have to make my own dressing because any of the dressings that I could find in the, in the grocery store were horrible. You know, we knew about industrial seed oils a long time ago. It's just the science has only recently caught up. But those of us in the ancestral world have known the canola and soybean oil and corn oil and safflower, sunflower, they're, they're horrible for you. And they're maybe worse than sugar. Uh, and so to put that stuff on a salad was taking a bowl of wonderful, delicious, crunchy, um, you know, new, uh, healthful vegetables and making it horrible. Literally, not just not just not very good, but making it worse for you than not having a salad at all. So, um, meanwhile, because my blog was started ostensibly to help me sell my supplements, I had a supplement line for thirty years. Primal Nutrition was my first supplement company, and I had started that to make antioxidant supplements and specific things for athletes looking to enhance their recovery from the overtraining that they were all doing. Ultimately, that that line of products uh, became kind of a mainstream anti-aging uh, supplementation regimen. But Mark's Daily Apple was started as a means of, as a platform to try and, um, and sell those products. Uh, but at some point, not early, like, like uh, at some point, like, well, first of all, I, I, in 2010, I wrote a book called The Primal Blueprint, Sauces, Dressings, and Toppings. And my original Primal Blueprint had come out a year earlier, and it was uh, a big success. Uh, it, it spent a day at number one on Amazon worldwide, all time, all the books on Amazon. And it, I was self-published. I couldn't, I didn't even have a, you know, I didn't even have a publisher. I published it myself. Um, so it sold a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of copies. So I thought this, this healthy dressings and toppings will this book will crush it. So I printed like 40,000 copies. I think we sold in the first two years, we sold 6,000 copies. Of it. Oh. So I realized, <laughs> I realized that people don't want to make their own sauces, dressings, and toppings. Maybe they want to buy them. So in 2014, I just realized, look, I'm writing about food all the time. Um, I'm, I'm actually moving away from talking about high potency supplementation, because if you eat appropriately, you don't need to supplement your diet. So maybe what I should be doing is making the sorts of sauces, dressings, and toppings that I thought uh, would appeal to not just myself, which is always my first customer, uh, but to all those people who, um, you know, didn't buy the book on how to make those. They just waited for the for the products to come around. So in 2014, we started um, Primal Kitchen and we sold our first product, which was a jar of mayonnaise in 2015, in March of 2015. And it and it quickly took off. It was a it was a real unique concept in food. No one had done this before because what I did was I took uh, ingredients that I knew to be healthful, uh, better for you, taste great, um, and and wickedly expensive. Uh, and so we we would we would make the product in the kitchen first, 
and then figure out how much we would need to charge for it to make a profit. Uh, usually in big food, what they do is they say, okay, uh, we need to make this crunchy, salty, fatty, sweet thing. Um, and it needs to retail for $3.99 a jar. So what, what shitty, what oils can we use, the cheapest oils possible, to create the taste sensation that we're trying to create and make a profit at $3.99? So we worked backwards into this. We didn't say, okay, we want to be on the shelves at X price and then back our way into the compromises that we would need to, to undergo to make the product. We built the product first and then we priced it later. And it was a, you know, it was a, it was a leap of faith because most people in the industry would say, my God, you're charging $9.95 for a 12 ounce jar of mayonnaise. No one's going to buy that. Well, I think we proved them wrong. I think a lot of people said, this is the product we've been waiting for. How come no one has done this yet? We understand that these ingredients are very expensive. I'll give you an example. Um, primal Kitchen mayonnaise is 56%, 57% avocado oil by weight. Um, wow. And avocado avocado oil costs in the neighborhood of $3 a pound. Canola okay. oil and soybean oil and corn oil sometimes cost 40 cents a pound. Uh, so you can see how attempting it would be for, for food companies to go, eh, the customer doesn't know that we're using a blend of soybean, corn oil, safflower, whatever. Um, and they don't, most of them don't care because they don't know enough to care. Uh, and that's how, that's how food has been made for the last 30 or 40 years. And so we came in and kind of disrupted that whole space and said, well, there's, there's a discerning buyer out there uh, who has the means and, and the education to, to understand what we're doing here and will want to buy products like this. And now we have, I think, 85 different products. We have, you know, ketchup. We solved the ketchup product uh, problem years ago. Uh, yeah. You know, for years, moms were like pulling their hair out because ketchup had high fructose corn syrup. Everybody knew it. Everybody talked about it. And no one in the industry would do anything about it. So we made a product that was, you know, natural, organic, great tasting and unsweetened. Uh, and kids love it. And um you know, uh, we would say, why did it take this long to solve this problem? Why did it have to be up to us to solve this problem? So that's that's how Primal Kitchen came to be. So Mark, you can correct me if I'm wrong with this assumption, because you're obviously the creator and you know what actually goes into this. But from what I see on my side, it doesn't seem like it's that complicated of a switch because you're simply switching like, you know, like you said, the canola oil with the avocado oil. And you're no soy teriyaki sauce. You're switching like the soy with coconut aminos. So like you're just tweaking a few things and like choosing the healthier options, right? Yep, exactly. So uh, the question is, why doesn't everybody do that? Money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's that's pretty much it. Um, you know, food food works on very very tight margins to begin with. The food industry. So there are um, uh, all sorts of variables that go into. Uh, getting a product to the shelf, not just the manufacturing, not just the raw materials, but the, the packaging, um, the the um, slotting fees to be on the shelf. You literally pay money to be on the shelf. So there's a, uh, in, the industry has a, you can, you can talk about your gross sales, 
but then nobody cares about gross sales, which is the actual dollar volume of what you sold. They care about net sales, which is the dollar volume of what you sold minus the 18% or whatever it is you had to pay everybody to get to get that there. The, the charges, you know, charged back or paid back to the grocery stores or whatever. This and that doesn't include distribution and brokerage fees and things like that. So there are thin margins in food. And uh so it's it's tough for a company that's been doing uh, a standard product for a long time to, first of all, to make a change that would in any way uh, change the flavor profile of food. So, you know, you like Velveeta, which is, you know, a craft cheese product, and it's been around for a long time. It is one of the most favorite uh, types of food for most of America. Mm-hmm. And you could say, well, we could clean up Velveeta cheese, but if it tastes any different, uh, their sales would drop. Uh, and if you cleaned it up by using, you know, better ingredients, maybe the price would go up. So it's it's a it's a complex equation, and uh, I think people can't get so pissed off at big food because they're not making these changes. Um, and then to enter the food business uh, w- without the uh, without the margin or the scale that many large companies have, and trying to do it with uh, expensive ingredients is is not an easy. Uh, project. And so a lot of companies have tried and a lot of companies have failed. I just, I happened to have a successful company at the time that enabled me to grow Primal Kitchen by reinvesting the profits from my other company into R&D and into the years that we lost money while we were building the company up. And how awesome is it just to have like the confidence that it's going to take off, right? (laughs) Because I'm sure it's easy to like get down if like you're if you're not making money right away i mean i've never owned a business like this so i don't know like i'm sure there's some equation you got to follow like how long you need to wait before you start making money but just to like stick it out yeah 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 no it's it's uh you know how the confidence is often tempered by the you know the 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 panic when you have bad stuff happen which you always do as Mm -hmm. an entrepreneur right so being an entrepreneur is a roller coaster there are amazing highs and there are like you know the kind of lows that would, you know, knock you, knock you back. Uh, but that's, you know, that's what it, it takes the resilience uh, of an endurance athlete to, uh, you know, to, to withstand that kind of stuff. And I, I tell people, you know, my, again, it's my, my training as, as a endurance athlete was about managing discomfort. Yours is too. I mean, very rarely do you go outside, at least for me, did I go out um, during my competitive career and think, oh my God, this is fun! I'm having a blast. I'm running, <laughs> I'm running six tens uh, for the first ten mile of this thirty miler, and then I'm going to run six thirties for the, you know, for the second ten. Um, and I have to pace myself. And it's it's not about having fun; it's about feeling confident in your abilities, and it's about that sense of pride that you have for being one of the elite uh, endurance people in the world. It's not fun. And so the life is about managing discomfort and how dig a hole, how big a hole am I willing to dig for myself? Um, and, you know, and, and hurt during this workout and especially during this race, um, how much am I willing to hurt before I have to back off and drop out? And uh, that skill um, carries over very, very nicely into business. Yeah. You know, 
And I mean, going to that like reference that you just had that analogy about digging the hole, how big of a hole are we willing to dig? Um, I would venture to say that the more you start to learn about your health and fitness and start to care about it, that perceived hole um, does get smaller when you start focusing on eating healthy foods, because like inflammation is such a huge thing that can like cause injury for endurance athletes. And like the constant pounding that you're putting on your body is already going to cause some level of inflammation. But if you're going to finish like these huge feats of endurance and like go home and like have a loaded baked potato covered with like a hidden Valley ranch dressing, like you're going to swell up even more and have even more inflammation and your recovery is going to go down. And so, I mean, at least for me, like a huge part of my endurance journey is, and it sounds like the same for you, like eating healthy, nutritious foods to limit that inflammation and speed up recovery. So you can maybe not enjoy it as much, but like feel good while you're trying to like well, push it. No, I, I think that's a good point. Not enjoy, maybe not enjoy it as much is the, is the wrong terminology, but not, not be so miserable after the fact. Right. Uh, you know, and uh, you're right. Cause inflammation played a huge role in, in my life. Uh, the whole time I was, I was an endurance athlete. I didn't really discover uh, you know, low carb, uh, healthy eating until after I retired from competition. So most of my competitive years, I was trying to cram down a thousand grams of carbs a day and it didn't matter where it came from. Some of it was beer, some of it was waffles, loaves of bread, bowls of cereal. I mean, all the stuff that we talk about now being pretty much antithetical to health. Those were what we, we assumed you needed to fuel the miles and the way we trained, which was in this black hole pain cave, um, thing where we didn't really orchestrate the training in a way that made sense to build upon uh, newly acquired skills and newly acquired, you know, biochemical adaptations. It was just going out and practicing hurting every day. In order to do that, you had to carbo load every night and then do it again and deplete the next day and then do it again the next day, night, and, you know, and carbo load the next night. And so it was always this vicious cycle of inflammatory foods going in so that you could go out and, and, and hammer yourself. And that's where the term chronic cardio comes from. And that's where, that's why for the longest time I've said, you know, I said to people, I don't think you really want to run a marathon. I think if, if you want to run a marathon, I'll show you how to do one. If you want to do it as a, as a life, you know, uh, as a bucket list item or as a notch on your belt, um, I'll show you how to do one. And if you enjoyed it, if you really liked it, I'll let you do another one. Um, but if you haven't broke, if you can't break three hours for the marathon, then, then you're not a runner. So let's find a new sport for you. And I hate, I hate to put it that way to, to people who are, you know, um, I would say, you know, career marathoners, I, I'll meet people who done, who do six or eight marathons a year. And I'm like, what's your PR? Well, 345, you know, I'm hoping to, to get to 330. I'm, I'm like, well, God bless you. I, I was a career runner and I've never spent that long running. Now, I know you spent a lot, a lot of time running. And, and as an ultra guy, it's a different it's a, it's a different beast. Um, and I'll, when we talk about marathoning, it's literally like a speed. It's a speed event. I tell people I, I, I hurt more after a tough marathon than after an Ironman. Oh yeah. Because a tough marathon, there is no letting up from the time the gun goes off. You are, you are, if you're in, in the, you know, in the elite part of it, you are busting your ass every single step, every step 
you're monitoring your your breathing, you're monitoring your footfall, you're you know adjusting for uh, the runners around you, um, and you're not sort of lost in this. Well, I'll I'll you know I'll I'll dissociate from the race, and by mile twenty, I'll start to re-enter the race. You're working, you're pounding, you're pissing blood at the end of a marathon. Um, you know, it's a, it's a slightly, it's a much different beast with, I mean, I know these guys who run Ironman are, are crushing themselves these days, but in the old days, um, it, it was easier to recover from a hard Ironman than it was from a, a, a hard marathon. I'm just, I'll just put it like that. Um, the ultra guys, you know, I, God bless you. Like I say, you're, you're pacing yourself over hours and hours and hours, and I can't even, I can't even fathom it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the same within the ultra world. Like my specialty is the 200 mile distance, which actually takes days, not just hours. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like I tell like the people I coach all the time, you know, similar to what you just said about the the marathon and the Ironman, I hurt way more after a hard 50 K than I do after a 200 miler, just because the intensity is so much higher. Yes. The, yes. So yeah. A hundred percent. Get it. Um, I think another important thing to quickly talk about while we're, while we're on Primal Kitchen is the importance of supplementing, especially once you reach your thirties, uh, collagen. Huh? And so, um, where, like, where did you, I know you started with the mayonnaise, but like, where did the, the collagen start to come into play and why do you feel it's important? I mean, it's an obvious question, but like, why do you feel it's important? Well, it's not an obvious question, but it, but it's a good question. It's like, I, um, I first really, paid attention to collagen when I got uh, Achilles tendinosis about 12 years ago. So bad that I had two surgeons tell me there's only one cure for this. Um, we're going to cut you, cut your legs open in the backside, scrape off the Achilles, wrap you up for uh, three months. Um, while you re- and then, and then a nine month uh, physical therapy rehab and you'll be back to 85%. And I'm like, no, fuck that. I'm, I am not doing that. And so I, I started thinking to myself, what, this is clearly a a raw materials issue. Um, I'm eating all this meat and I'm eating primally, but I'm not eating nose to tail and I'm not getting enough collagen. And up until recently, only in the last 20 years, we always had collagen in our diet. So either we ate nose to tail, we ate the organs of the animal, um, or we ate the skin of the chicken, or we ate the skin of the fish, or we ate uh, grandma made bone broth. Mm. And that was into the sixties and seventies. And then we had jello. So even if you didn't eat that, the, the kids had Jello, which was gelatin, which was collagen peptides, and Jello was a big thing. Or or moms had um, Knox gelatin that they would take for their skin, hair, and nails. Um, and it wasn't until like Jello became, oh, it's got too much sugar, so that was off the diet. And I found we find out that by the '90s, people are only eating the choice cuts of meat. They're not eating gelatin. They're <laughs> and this was the bodybuilding days where you would eat skinless chicken mm. as your protein <laughs> source as a bodybuilder. Um, and so there was no collagen in the diet anywhere. And, um, I started looking at that thinking, well, collagen is like a critical, it should be the fourth nutrient. It should be fat, protein, carbohydrate, and collagen. Collagen is separate enough from the other amino acid groupings that, uh, these collagen peptides ought to have their own classification. So I started supplementing with collagen when I had this Achilles tendinosis and within four months, and I was doing 30 grams a day, 30 or 40 grams a day, within four months, I cured this thing that had had uh, kept me off the sprint track for about a year and a half or two years, kept me off of playing ultimate Frisbee, which is my favorite game. So I cured myself, knock wood, my Achilles are the, are the strongest they've ever been. 
Um, and I thought, Jesus, this is <clears throat> this is pretty amazing. I started doing more research on collagen, and and you know, you'll see today some people say it, the research is not clear on collagen, and and it's not clear that that supplementing with collagen is even necessary or important or effective. Well, I beg to differ, and I think um, my having supplemented with collagen uh, now for a long time is part of the reason that at the age of 70, I'm still able to go, you know, two hours hard hiking and, and sprinting around, you know, corners and stuff like that. So, um, so that's what started me to say, well, I'm, I'm going to make a collagen product because I'm so, um, I'm so strong on this concept of collagen missing from our diet. And yeah, I mean, within the last 10 years, you know, bone broth, bone broth has had a, a resurgence, a reintroduction. Mm -hmm. So some people are getting their collagen from bone broth. Now nose to tail is becoming a thing. So people are eating more nose to tail. And even if they're not, they're taking the supplements that are sort of nose to tail supplements. So there's a little bit more, it's funny because there's in many cases, there's more collagen in the capsule uh, that they're oh. taking the clear capsule yeah. than in the actual product. But um, unless you're taking a veggie cap. So anyway, that's the story of the collagen. I don't want to, I don't want to stop before we talk about shoes. So I'll let you segue into shoes, into footwear. Well, I actually had a good segue into footwear. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so what I'm seeing, Mark, with your journey is you basically, you have this goal, you have this lifestyle, something happens, you do research and you make something to solve it. Like that seems like a, what a lot of, most of your journey has really been. And so I'm curious to know, you know, where you're at today. Like you said, you just celebrated your 70th birthday, like a couple of weeks ago, right? It's next week, but, but uh, Everybody on the oh. internet starts <laughs> starts uh, giving me happy early birthdays. Oh. Next thing you know, so whatever. Sorry, I thought I saw you do a post about turning seventy, but maybe you're just talking about it in the future. Well, I guess yeah, you yeah. are talking about it in the future. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So I'm curious to know, Mark. Right now, um, from what I've seen, you're out traveling, having fun, but you're also um, you have a new company called Paluva, which yes. is um, a company about shoes and foot health. So, what brought you to this point in your life? Yeah, so my whole life I've been um, interested in foot health and foot comfort and shoe comfort, and it started with uh, the fact that in the '60s when I started running, I was running in Chuck Taylors in, in Converse low-rise basketball shoes. They were very thin, um, thin soles, um, and there were a couple of other companies. There was uh, Onitsuka Tigers, which was Phil Knight's first company. Again, very thin soles. Um, zero drop. So the, the heel and the toe, the metatarsal were at the same height off the ground. And in those days, um, the amount of miles you could do was dictated by your feet. Like when you're, it was your feet that said, okay, time to stop. No more running today or no more running this week because you couldn't, you couldn't really heel strike. Uh, you had to, you had to be a more, um, I think if effective humanistic runner by, uh, becoming more efficient at midfoot striking, forefoot striking. So, um, but then along comes uh, Phil Knight and thick, thick-soled shoes. And the next thing you know, um, the the idea is, well, maybe we should be running more miles because we can, because uh, we're able to do that because this cushioning is is protecting our feet, and our feet aren't aren't telling us to stop running. But the irony is it was the knees that were telling us to stop running and the hips that were telling us to stop running and the lower back. So all it did was bypass the critical information that your feet need. Your feet need to feel the ground underneath. You need to feel every pebble you step on and every rock and every change in terrain. The feet need to feel that and transmit that energy to the brain 
so that by the time you weight the front foot, your body knows exactly how to bend the foot, how to bend the knee, how to flex the hip, how to torque the everything, all that information is in your body. Well, when you put on thick cushioned shoes, you bypass all that information. So the good news is you can put in more miles. And that's how I wound up doing, you know, 100 miles a week on a body that probably shouldn't have done more than 50 miles a week. Um, and so many of the, of the runners over the past several generations get, there's no decrease in running injuries because, because of high-tech running shoes. It's the same number of running injury, injuries. So this was always a problem for me. So I was a big fan of the minimalist footwear movement when it started in the early 2000s. I was an early adopter of the first company that made five-toed shoes, thin five-toed shoes. I wore them everywhere. I wore them. I had 25 pair in my closet. That's all I ever wore. Um, I, I recognized that my feet were getting stronger because I was using the small muscles of my feet, finally. Um, I never rolled an ankle, even though I could run across a pothole field or a, you know, a, a Frisbee field full of gopher holes and not twist an ankle. Just every time I'd land, my, my brain knew exactly how to tell my body to adjust to that. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't, there were, there were no shoe companies that were making the, the, what I thought was the appropriate footwear for humans, which is a foot-shaped shoe, uh, wide at the, at the toes, because you want your toes to splay outward, um, that allowed for individual toe articulation. So the toes not only move outward, side to side, but up and down. Your toes need to feel, they need to feel every single piece of rock that you walk on or every time you push off, your big toe should be aligned with your heel, not crunched into the other toes like so many of the modern footwear does. So about two and a half years ago, my son and I started a company called Peluva with the goal of creating the optimal footwear for humans, uh, one that you could wear not just in the gym and training or sprinting on the track or uh, hiking or doing all the, the activities that we like to do, but one that you could also wear that looked that looked attractive, that had a nice looking upper uh, so that you could wear it to work or you could wear it to what I like to say, wear it to weddings and funerals and not get kicked out. Um, and um, and so we've come up with this line of, of shoes and I, I've sent you some and I, I want to hear your feedback. But the, the idea here was um, your feet need to be trained all day, all day long in whatever configuration. Ideally, we would go barefoot. I would love everyone to go barefoot. We're born barefoot. We evolved barefoot, but we didn't evolve barefoot to walk on tar, pavement, glass, uh, concrete, tile, hardwood floors, and all these hard surfaces. We evolved to work on, walk on uneven surfaces, matted grass, tamped down earth, pine needles, things like that. So we wanted to create a shoe that that gave you the, the sort of the, the sensation of maybe walking barefoot across a putting green, right? So that meant that it had to have just a little bit of cushioning, not a lot, not an inch or an inch and a half like most of the running shoes do today, literally three millimeters of a soft cushioning. Um, so the total, the total, what we call stack height is, is 10 millimeters, one centimeter, basically a little bit more than a third of an inch is, is, is how far you're off the ground. That enables you to, to cushion the blow of walking on concrete, but allows you also to feel everything that you walk on. And so when I say I just went for a two-hour hike, two hours and 15, on cobblestones and uneven rocks, I had my wife take pictures of the surfaces that we were walking on today. Because when I go out with these shoes on and I walk these, I feel like I'm getting a reflexology massage on my feet for two hours. 
It feels so good. It feels so awesome to know that every time my foot lands, it lands in a different position on a different surface. And that's a good thing. So tell me about your experience, Mike. <laughs> so, so yeah, I have three pair and um, one of those pairs is not my wedding and funeral pair. It's my church pair. <laughs> you know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I do get some funny looks at church, but I don't care. Um, you know, whenever people say like, I have a family member that she hates my toe socks. I've been in toe socks for years and she always calls them ugly. And she's yeah. like, well, if you think those toe socks are ugly, like you don't want to hear what I think of those shoes. And I'm like, yeah. I don't care what you think. Like I'm trying to make myself comfortable here. But um, when I first wore them, I, I'll admit I could only wear them for like an hour or two, like the spacing in my toes, it, it hurt my toes to, to be honest with you. And yeah. I remember I took them to the gym. I tried pulling the sled backwards in them. That wasn't comfortable because it was like shoving up into the, the middle of yeah. my, my toes. But, you know, I've been wearing them a little bit every day now for a couple months and I'm at the point where I, I wear them all day. Um, I just went and did like, I had two coaching calls before this and I went for an hour walk while I did those. I walked in the Paluvas. I'm going to go to the gym in the Paluvas. I've ran a couple miles in them before. And like, I've noticed that I can just wear them all day now. My feet have gotten used to it. And, and like you said, like, I'm not just, I'm not just trying to be used to it. Like it is extremely comfortable, like what you're feeling like the shoe is a part of your foot essentially. And I'm sure that's kind of what you were saying earlier, but, yep. um, I do, I do want to say though, too, cause obviously I'm sure you've heard of ultra footwear before. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you know, you're talking about the foot shape, which obviously ultra is, and I have a nice pair of casuals that I've worn to church for years that are ultra. Um, even a foot-shaped toe box, in my opinion, you can correct me if, uh, if I'm wrong, even a foot-shaped toe box is not going to give you the optimal toe spacing that you need. Because exactly. like, if the ultras were helping me, I, I would guess that as soon as I put the Paluvas on, they wouldn't have been hurting me like within an hour. Right? Yeah, so what you're, what you're describing is what so many people describe, which is the idea that, that your feet would hurt after a little bit of time in the Paluvas basically means... You, you needed these because yeah. um, our feet are so cramped. There's, you know, the big toe is moved inward. The little toe is moved inward to form a point because most shoes are pointy in the middle. And that's not what a, a foot is shaped like. Feet are meant to be splayed outward. So the toe box, even of a, of a, some of the more popular shoes, and I think Ultra makes a great running shoe. So I would say, for instance, for you, what I, I would coach people, I say, wear the Paloobas all day long and do the gym work, do the sled work splay your toes outward let the let the individual toe articulation let, let the toes feel the ground underneath uh get the maximum amount of push off the big toe separately from the other toes um so that that's something that ultras don't allow of, of course and other other minimalist toe box shoes that don't have five toed shoes don't allow that because all of toes work together within that toe box then when it's time to run put on your ultras or whatever it is and go and go run and your feet will thank you for you I think your your feet will be stronger as a result of the 23 hours well not 23 but the you know the 14 hours that you spent the rest of the day moving around walking around doing your errands driving your car going to work standing at work standing at the at, a, at the checkout counter uh picking your kids up from school uh going to the gym doing the stairmaster doing all of the, the you know squats and lunges and all the stuff that require a strong foot base um your feet will be stronger for having done that. One of the problems that the original five-toed shoe company had was 
uh, people went out and ran seven miles the first day. They're like, oh, my God, uh, I read Born to Run, and it said we should be barefoot, so I'm going to go run seven miles. I run 80 miles a week, so seven miles. And then they got they got injured because they weren't used to having zero. You know, these were people who trained to be heel strikers, and all of a sudden, those shoes don't really encourage. They don't even allow heel striking. Like, you'll hurt yourself if you heel strike with some of these uh, minimalist shoes. So um, we, we would say, again, don't run in these unless you're extremely well-trained in them and your feet have spent you know a long time getting used to them, but do everything else in them. And then when it's time to play basketball, put on your basketball shoes. When it's time to play football or, or, you know, or soccer, put on your cleats. When it's time to go for a run, put on your running shoes. As I say, I think your feet will be stronger. What we're trying to do is we're trying to open up the big toe so the big, this big toe alignment is a whole new body work that, talk, that talks about how so much plantar fasciitis is not an itis, it's an osis, it's a death of tissue because we've squeezed this hallucis abductor mus, muscle and we've cramped the big toe in and it cuts off circulation through the plantar fascia. So we're trying to open that up. We're trying to you know, give people more toe freedom uh, you know, and, let, and let feet be feet instead of, you know, cramped into these, encased into these pillow bottomed, you know, things that we, that we think are, are cushioning our footfall, but in fact, they're probably doing more harm than good. Yeah. You brought up a really interesting point and I'll just make this really quick. Cause I, I know we're going to wrap up here, but there's so many runners don't realize that there's so many issues that you can develop injury wise that relate from poor foot health. Um, yep. there's actually somebody I've been coaching that has been having foot issues for a couple of months now. And then once I discovered Paluva, um, I did some research on his condition and like the common theme that I was seeing was poor shaped shoes could be causing it. And so I sent him a link to Paluva. He bought a pair and within two or three days, like that pain that he kept feeling was, was gone. And so foot health is extremely important, like for everybody, but especially for an endurance athlete. Um, all athletes. I mean, it's bizarre. If you've seen pictures of LeBron James's feet, oh yeah, <laughs> they, they're deformed. The yeah. poor guy, they're deformed, and that's because he's, you know, he's cramped them into those basketball shoes for years when he should have been doing half most of his training barefoot. You know, mm -hmm. at least running barefoot sprints on the, you know, on the grass outside, or you know, doing actual foot drills. But it's 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 just like you know, elite athletes and, and professional athletes typically have crappy diets, right? And these are like guys making 30, 40, 50 million bucks a year and their diets are crappy. Like you would think <laughs> that they could, they, that they would be willing to fine tune that part of their lifestyle because of who they are and what they do. Well, the same goes for feet. If you don't pay attention to foot health, that could be the end of your career. And I had to quit running and I missed out on the, on, you know, the Olympic trials in 1980 because I had osteoarthritis in my feet. And I guarantee you, it was because of the shoes that I was wearing in combination with the highly inflammatory diet. Well, because we have people like you, hopefully people won't have to deal with that anymore. And I mean, it, at first it's going to take action on their part. I mean, yeah. So, so to your listeners, I would say anybody, you know, try Paluvas. Um, you know, we have a 30 day money back guarantee. If they don't fit, we'll find a pair that does. I mean, all of the, you know, we're, we want to be as consumer friendly as possible. Um, you'd go to paluva.com. I hope you have some show notes we do. Uh, here for that. And I would say, give them a, give them a try. And, and uh, you know, I think you'll, you'll be now give them an appropriate amount of time. You said it took you a couple of days, right? 
but now you've you've gotten past that. And that's one of the things we've heard. People who have kind of the worst feet have the toughest time, first of all, getting their toes into the individual toe boxes. <laughs> yeah. Once they do that, the toes then have to adjust and say, well, wait a minute, you know, we're now we're we're free and we're able to do what we were supposed to do. We're we're used to being cramped together and 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 enclosed in these in these shoes. Um, so, but after a couple of days, invariably people go, oh my God, this is like a whole new uh, lease on life. You know, like I've got, I've got feet now that actually work and, I, and my big toe works. I realize my big toe ha- can work separately from the other four toes. It's a, it's a great revelation for a lot of people. Yeah. I started with one pair. Now I'm up to three. So I, I promise it's go. worth it. I love them. <laughs> Well, cool, Mark. We'll we'll wrap up here and we'll add all that to the show notes. But I do have one more question before I let you go. Yes. So um, that post you made a couple of weeks ago about turning 70, I showed yep. it to my wife and I said, try to guess how old this guy is. And she said, uh, if I had to guess upper 50s, lower 60s. I was like, no. Well, I thought you were 70 at the time. I was like, he just barely yeah. turned 70 and she yeah. was blown yeah. away. And yeah. so if you had one or two pieces of advice, um, for what people can do to implement right now to look as good as you do at the age of 70, what would that be? Well, diet is 80% of it. I mean, you really have to die. If you can't dial your diet in, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle uh, with everything else you do. So I could give you the greatest workout scheme ever. And if your diet is not dialed in, it's not going to work. Diet is 80% of body composition. It's 80% of your energy levels. And so really work on, on fixing that if that's out of whack. Um, after that, I would say walking. Walking is the single greatest uh, exercise humans can do. Um, and I don't mean walking 30 minutes a day. I mean trying to find a couple of days a week where you walk an hour and a half or two hours. Um, it, is, it is who we are. It's, we're bipedal animals, and we should be walking. Um, every time I... I get up from doing several hours of work at the computer. I'm like, God, damn it. it's like, I, I'm, I'm achy. I'm hurting. I can't, I can't believe that I let myself do that. I got too involved in the writing or whatever the process was. Take breaks, walk around, change, change movement patterns, but get out there and walk. And then ultimately, so it's diet, it's walking. And then twice a week, you know, get in the gym or, or get in your backyard and do some sort of a, a, a lifting routine, whether it's body weight exercises uh, or whether it's, you know, equipment in the gym, machines in the gym or dumbbells or stretch bands or whatever it is for you, two days a week, just do some high intensity stuff for 30 minutes. Doesn't need to be more, can be more, but 30 minutes is a good number. Perfect. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> well, cool. Thank you, Mark. Um, on, on Instagram, you're Mark Sisson. Is it just Mark Sisson? Mark Sisson Primal. Primal. Okay. That's what it is. Yep. Yep. And then, and then we're, we are on Paluva. We're where Paluva, W-E-A-R, where Paluva. Um, and then of course, Paluva.com is the website to, to peruse and buy. Okay. Awesome. We'll add all that to the show notes. Cool. Well, thank you for your time, Mark. Again, I know you're busy and I know you're having fun in France, um, but we really do appreciate it. And, My pleasure. Yeah. And for those who are listening, thanks for listening and we will see you next week. <laughs>